Hey, good morning, Hillcrest family. Uh, journey continues. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty special. Um, I mean, you can see j- just what struck me e- even in the past few seconds here, right? We, we just believe we're, we're some beggars that have found some bread and we want to share it with those around us that we believe God has done a work and, and we just want to see that get expressed from the inside out. And so even in, even in that logo uh, from the H with two arrows stemming out from, from either end, it is that conviction that from the inside out, this transformation takes place. And so I I love that we got to see that in a few lives as well as in a few stories. Um, So if you joined us this past weekend on Friday, there was something taking place here. And if you're new with us, there is a connect card in the seat back in front of you. We'd love you to fill that out. Bring that to the the welcome desk just to get to know you here, a little bit of your story as well. Uh, But there was an activity here this past weekend, family night. And so if you reach in your back pocket, uh, can you see what might be in there? Would you just explore with the possibility that something might be in the seat back in front of you? Uh, Let's see. Is there anything there? Did anyone find anything that might have have come? Uh, John, what'd you find, John? Could you hold that up real quick? There it is, a little cupcake ducky. So, so there was a bunch of kids that descended into this auditorium to find 300 rubber duckies. Um, and I got to share with my kids when we got home for a little, see that one right in the middle, that's them trading rubber duckies at the end of the night. So we got to sing, rubber ducky, you're the one. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I love this idea that it's both in the silly and the seriousness, right? And the silliness of chasing after rubber duckies, but simultaneously the joy of being, communi- being in community towards the objective of finding life with Jesus. And another way that manifests itself around here um, is in those gobs of ice cream that my daughter collected. You could see that her mom and I weren't watching as closely. And so next thing I know, she returns with this massive pile of ice cream. Uh, but something else coming up around here that, that we love is just our campus work day. J- just an opportunity to, to work shoulder to shoulder and, and, and grow together and be together as a community. Uh, because I'm so thankful for your generosity in your treasure and how you give resources to this community. But it's also through blood, sweat, tears. There's also time that, that happens through your investment around here that makes things happen. And so I'm thankful for your time that you allocate towards this activity once a year. And so an opportunity to be together and, and learn as I observe other people wielding tools and hammers, a gift that I do not possess. And so looking forward to seeing you guys on that day. But we're continuing on in this Easter journey, four movements. Last week, we got to hear about Jesus teaches. We walk through the Beatitudes and the accessibility of the kingdom. This is a call to relationship through the person of Christ. And so Jesus now enters this triumphal entry. And we're going to look through the lens of John. And I think John includes an incredible detail for us because he, he doesn't want us to miss the reality of what's happening. So often in this Easter story, it becomes a familiar uh, repetition of concepts and words and ideas we've heard many times if you've been in and around a faith community. And John, I think, even recognized that then and includes a detail in his recounting of the triumphal entry that is familiar as they were with the Old Testament. 
there was still a gap in their understanding of who this Jesus guy really was. And it wasn't until later, looking back, they got a fuller picture of just who this Jesus guy is. And so as we prepare our hearts for Holy Week, as we anticipate Easter and Good Friday, may we not miss the reality of what it means that the king has arrived and the implications for our lives. So here's where John takes us in John chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the feast of Passover, anticipating this coming Messiah, sacrificing a lamb, they had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm, branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they looked back and they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign, raising a dude from the dead. So the Pharisees, they weren't texting one another, right? This news just started to spread one life at a time. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, they are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And I find that fascinating. They're at a Jewish feast. What are these Pharisees describing? And John tries to tease that out for us. He says this, now among those who went up to worship at this Jewish feast of Passover were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who were from Bethsaida and Galilee and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus and Jesus answered them. Fascinating response. Jesus, these Greek guys want to meet you. Here's Jesus' words in response to that ask. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he gives these hard words, these hard truths. What, what do we do with these truths? Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world, will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So as we look at this triumphal entry, I think it's one of the most spiritual transformative weeks of the year. A lot can happen in seven days. And when we get to Easter, we're going to reflect on the Emmaus Road of guys who, though they saw Jesus walking with them, he was right in front of them, they missed it. In the same way, we're going to look and see this morning through the triumphal entry, it recalls events and feelings of centuries leading up to these last few days of Jesus' life. And in the midst of the celebration, John records that they weren't fully aware of what was taking place. May we not miss the reality of what is taking place this Easter season. So pray with me as we dig into the text this morning. God, we love the gift of hearing from you. We read these ancient documents written by these dudes that existed much like us in the first century and yet simultaneously are overwhelmed with the reality that you were inspiring these very words. And so help us see what details John included to tell us about this powerful moment of you entering in to claim your kingdom. 
Thank you, Jesus. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, so I, I think a fairly simple outline as we walk through it, but just two, two ideas contained in this triumphal entry. One, John wants to say, some people are missing the king. Don't miss the king as he enters. And then second, those of us for whom aren't missing the king, there's a response that he's calling us to, Jesus is calling us to. There is a response of those that see the king for who he is. So let, let's start here, missing the king. John, as he begins recording, shows that Jesus is always in control, <laughs> that he is the king riding in, and it's not lost on him what's taking place. He is in control of these circumstances. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard, and ugh, man, I, I say this every time, this is all we do on Sundays, right? You guys get that? It is unreal. We hear stories just of people, everyday people, ordinary people living their life, talking about what Jesus is doing in their life. And then we read the Bible. I mean, this is crazy, right? This is crazy. We get so caught up in our day-to-day, -day, we're going to get there in this sermon. We just get caught up in our day-to-day. -day. And, and, and my mind, again, my mind goes to all the things that are on my schedule too. And I go, man, just the simplicity of the Christian faith, right? It is a fascinating message that, that again, I, I'm incredibly in awe of. And, and that just struck me. That was second service. That's just for us, guys. First service didn't get that. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus didn't stumble upon a donkey. Other, other gospels tell us a little bit more of the details. It wasn't that Jesus kind of happened upon a donkey, purposefully goes and finds a young donkey and sits on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus embraces the moment and fulfills a prophecy coming from the book of Zechariah 500 years prior. Here's what Zechariah said about this moment 500 years prior. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And what's fascinating about this, this is taking place 500 years prior to Jesus' arrival, and it's while these Jews are in captivity under Babylon with no king. They don't have a king at this moment, and yet they're prophesying, they're anticipating this king. And so to say it another way, to say exactly what's taking place, we could paraphrase, paraphrase this prophecy like this. Do not be afraid. Do not be cast down or depressed. Your circumstances aren't all that good. You're in captivity in Babylon, but rejoice, O daughter of Zion, people of Jerusalem, fallen and oppressed as your condition may be now. There will be a day when you shall have a king again. And there will come one who will ride into the gates of Jerusalem on a certain public occasion, and he will be a king riding on a donkey. Man, it's prophecy anticipating the arrival. And as much as we're not supposed to miss it, the people get caught up in the celebration but aren't fully recognizing Jesus for who he is as it appears John is recording. Though Jesus is celebrated, he's not recognized for who he is. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard 
that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So, so there's some recognition about this prophecy being somewhat fulfilled in this guy, and, but yet they don't have the full picture of exactly who this guy is. They're caught up in the celebration and they're screaming Hosanna. And it comes from one place. There's one spot in the Old Testament, Psalm 118, where this word is shared. Save us, Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so there was this transition of this language where it moved from save us to now the celebration of the Messiah is here. Our hope and our salvation has come. And I just think of it as a Vikings fan, because a few years ago, there was something called the Minnesota Miracle. You guys remember this? Oh, man, it was fantastic. It was a dream. So, so it's fourth quarter. It's fourth quarter. We're playing the Saints in order to go to the conference game. We're down by a touchdown. There's no way we have any. There's no chance. There's no chance. But what do we do as a Vikings fan? Always a Vikings fan. There's always the glimmer of, oh, there's a hope. And so... So we're chanting, save us, Case Keatum, right? And, and he's about to throw the ball to our superstar receiver, the name who won't be named because he decided to transfer to the Buffalo Bills. Stinking Stefan Diggs, just ruining our life. But he, he's, he's in this shotgun, right? So ball's hiked, and we're just screaming, save us, save us, Case Keatum, save us, Stefan Diggs. And then the ball's thrown, and New Orleans Saints cornerback misses the tackle, right? I can, I can still remember where I was watching because it was just, you know, I'm just pacing back. Well, you guys think I pace here. Just imagine the stress of watching the Viking. So the ball he misses the tackle. And now what does the language become? Our salvation is here. Our salvation is here. And he's running for the touchdown. And we win the game. And then we go on to the conference title. And then we just got smoked by the eagles. But that's neither here nor there. But there was this shift in the language of what the cheer was from save us to our salvation. I think you're getting caught up in the celebration from save us. But now our hope is here or so we perceive it to be, but not fully recognizing Jesus for who he is. That there's following Jesus and it's more than just watching him. It's more than just watching the miracles take place and being attracted by the acts or the gifts. What feels like it's more for us, it's more than just being associated with them. Sometimes it feels like we have a barcode faith where we just want our get out of jail free card. We just want to know that if we're associated with Jesus, when I get scanned for eternity, I'm good. All that other stuff in between, take it or leave it. But as long as I have my barcode faith and I get my get out of jail free card, I pray to prayer and I'm good for eternity, scan me and then just move on to the next and scan them. That it's more than just being associated with him. John's concerned, are we missing Jesus for who he is? And following Jesus is more than just knowing a lot about him. As we gain in our understanding of who he is, there's a temptation now that I need to manage my sin because I recognize my brokenness and now I just have to do the right things and check the right boxes because I'm following Jesus, which again, deceives us 
for us not truly recognizing him for who he is. And following Jesus is more than just celebrating him. Much like celebrating Case Keenum or Kim Kardashian. Man, how stinking cool is she? Man, just being famous for being famous. Does absolutely nothing. And yet she's famous. We're celebrating and then we just lump in Jesus as just another figure to be celebrated. It would seem then we're not fully recognizing him for who he is, that we're missing him. And John now personalizes that experience. He's celebrated but not always recognized, and he's not recognized by all, but who he is should be obvious. John looks back, and and he's like, man, I, I should have understood what was taking place, and yet here's his language that he uses. Pick it up at verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not recognize these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Man, it gives me a sense of comfort that despite how obvious it should have been, those that were closest to him missed it. But it also strikes me as a warning. David, as close as you are to this thing, don't miss this guy. Don't miss who he is. Because if we miss him, (laughs) there's profound implications for our life. But John now shifts gears, I think, in verse 20 and says, if you get who he is, That he truly is this king ushering in this kingdom. A relationship with him sits on the throne of your heart better than anything this life has to offer. If that's true of your life, this is what your life ought to be characterized by. Here's the response that we ought to have. That Jesus taught, repent for the the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's a call to follow. It's a call to follow more of that, more of life with Jesus. And here's how Jesus shares in the moment that call. Pick it up at verse, what, 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, there were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That if you get who Jesus is, he's now introducing this hard truth about what's about to take place, a familiar story we've heard. He's gonna die. That his path to bringing in his kingdom is through his death and glorification. And then he goes one step further. He gives this unexpected truth, right? He says, if the Greeks are going to get in, I I just picture the conversation. Hey, Jesus, do you want to meet the Greeks? And his response is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. They go, so do you want to meet him or not? And he gives this hard truth that is confusing. And yet for us, looking back, we understand a little more fully what he was talking about, that he's going to die. That for the Greeks to meet Jesus It's not him ushering in this kingdom 
but rather it's him going to die. And by his death, the Greeks now get included in this hope and message of eternity. And here's the truth he gives. And Jesus answered, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The way these Greek guys are going to get in, it's not by me ushering in the kingdom in the way you'd anticipate. It's actually going to be through me dying, this grain of wheat being planted. And if it dies, it's going to bear much fruit, namely the accessibility of the kingdom for all these beyond just the Jews, the Greeks get included too. And then he turns it. Stinking Jesus, right? And then he turns it. Because here's what he says. Not only is this hard truth about me, but this hard truth has implications for you. It's truth for them, the disciples, and for us. Here's what he says. If you don't embrace me as your treasure, then you're missing the king and you're not really getting who I am. Here's what he says. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I need to go to the cross and die in order to reconcile people to their God. And there's a call for us. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. It's not just for me to go and die on your behalf, but I want you to imitate me in what I've done. Whoever hates his life will keep it for eternity. And here's how I've heard that when I hear those words, here's where my mind often goes. I need to figure out how to love blank less. You know, I, ugh, I love my house. I just got to stop loving my house. I just got to hate my house. You know, I love my wife, but you know what? I just, I got to hate my wife in order to love Jesus. I just got to start hating these things in my life. I got to love these things less. I got to figure out how to stop loving these things. Instead, where my mind goes is, yeah, hot dogs. I love hot dogs. So this is just a savory. I'm the kind of guy that goes to Costco, that $1.50 hot dog, and I just, are you guys that load up on all the toppings? You guys just load up on the relish, or are you guys purists? That kind of, I'm thinking you guys are purists. You just load up a little bit of ketchup. You just want to savor the hot dog. Is that it? I, I want to take full advantage of the onions, the relish. I want to maximize that hot dog space and that bun space, right? I just want, I want to maximize that. But you know what I'd quickly give up a hot dog for? Man, if there was a steak offered, the hot dog's done. I don't, I don't want the hot dog anymore. I want the steak. And, and, and true confessions here, and I still put a little ketchup on those steaks. Is that allowed? Is that, <laughs> and, and, and here's my problem too. I, whenever I grill steaks, 
I just burn, not intentionally, I just burn those things to a crisp. We just had some ribeyes the other night. I ended up eating charcoal because I left the things on the grill way too long. And, and, and I would prefer, exactly, Gene, I would prefer, some of you guys like it that way. I'm like, who wants a well-done steak? That sounds terrible. Medium rare would be perfect. But, but if you had the choice between a hot dog and a steak, I mean, is it any question? it's the comparative value of those two items. It doesn't even compare. As much as I love hot dogs, and I'm probably eating hot dogs for lunch today, if there was an opportunity for a steak, I would gladly give that up. To say it differently from a guy named Thomas Chalmers in a book, sermon, packet he wrote called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, here's how Thomas Chalmers records it. And it's a tough quote, but let's walk through it together. He says this, to bid a man into whom there has not yet entered the great and ascendant influence of the principle of regeneration, he's yet to come to faith, he's yet to taste the sweetness of being in relationship with Jesus, to bid him to withdraw his love from all the things that are in this world is to bid him give up all the affections that are in his heart. The world is the all of the human natural man. Can't look beyond the things of this life to believe there's anything better. He has not yet tasted a desire nor a desire that points not to something placed within the confines of the visible horizon. He loves nothing above it and he cares for nothing beyond it. And to bid him, to tell him, you just got to stop loving those things. Just stop loving those things is foolishness. He loves nothing above it and he cares for nothing beyond it. And to bid him love not the world is to pass a sentence of expulsion on all the inmates of his bosom. To estimate the magnitude and the difficulty of such a surrender, let us only think that it were just as an arduous to prevail on him not to love, and he gives an example, money. Let's just take money for an example. To only think that it were just as arduous to prevail on him not to love wealth, which is but one of the things in this world, as to prevail on him to set willful fire to his own property. To just say, your stuff doesn't matter, just burn it. How would he respond? If you said, man, just get rid of this stuff, how might he respond? He tells us. This he might do with sore and painful reluctance if he saw that the salvation of his life hung upon it, but this he would do willingly if he saw what? That a new property of tenfold value, a ribeye steak compared to a hot dog, was instantly to emerge from the wreck of the old one. In a word, if the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object is to fasten it in positive love to another, then it is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former exclusively, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter. That all old things are to be done away and all things are to become new. The love of God and the love of the world are two affections, not merely in a state of rivalship, but in a state of enmity. And that's so irreconcilable that they cannot dwell together in the same bosom. You can't love both God and money. That money is a tool, nothing more, nothing less. But Jesus must be the greatest affection for our lives. And when we hear, you must hate your life to gain it, we often hear, what do I got to give up? Rather than, what a gain for what we could experience in life with Christ. The truth he gives us to them and to us, what would it look like to embrace Jesus as our greatest treasure? 
not out of duty and obligation as if he's not valuable based upon what we're getting. Instead, what a treasure to gain. What a treasure to gain. And if we believe that to be true, what's the inevitable byproduct? Man, I can't help but want to talk about him. Here's what he says. If Jesus truly is the greatest treasure, he enters in on a donkey fulfilling 500 years and we don't miss King Jesus this Easter season. What is an appropriate byproduct of experiencing the greatest treasure? Promoting Jesus' mission as the most significant investment of my life. Here's where he says that in the text. Whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life, hyperbole, in comparison, comparative value, hates his life in this world, will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And what I love about this call to follow is it's not rooted in duty and obligation. In the very same call to these hard truths, Jesus gives three compelling reasons why it's worth it. Whoever loses his life, right? Whoever loves his life will lose it. But if you choose this path of treasuring Jesus, you'll keep your life for eternity. And where I am, there's a promise of presence. There, my servant will be also with Jesus in his presence. And if anyone serves me, what's the response? The infinite God will honor him. There is a call of embracing the treasure that is Jesus and an inevitable byproduct of our life is, and we want to invite others to journey with us to enjoy this treasure we have found. And here, if we believe that, feels like we got to understand the sense of where our culture might be. Back in the 60s, these feel like the questions that might be asked by our culture in this pursuit of Jesus. These are the questions that might have been asked 60 years ago, 70 years ago. The questions would revolve around, is there a God? Is Christ the only way to God? Did Christ really rise from the dead? Are the biblical documents reliable? Does science and the Bible agree? And we could engage in these discussions, but what seems to be true about our culture, as they wrestle with, Missing the king's arrival. They're observing those that claim to recognize the king is here, and here seems to be the questions they're asking. The questions today feel more like, why are Christians imposing their morality on others? How can I trust the church that's done terrible things in the name of God? How, how do I trust? I, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. What about different forms of hypocrisy? And it doesn't seem that your beliefs truly transform your lives. And does your church serve those who are in need or is it another self-serving group? If we see Jesus for who he is, there's this inevitable desire to invite others into finding life in his name. And so what might that actually look like? You're like, David, you just keep heaping on this idea of evangelism to us. Do you ever get tired of just talking about evangelism, David? I do not. I stink and love it. <laughs> because it's the stake, 
not the hot dog. Do we believe what we have is of immense value? No guilt, though. When we talk about this, it could stir up feelings of, I'm not doing enough, and I'm not saying the right words, and I don't know what to do. No guilt. No guilt. Just a desire to continue to see Jesus for who he is. So what does it look like for us to demonstrate we are not missing the king this Easter season? I hope it's a call to imitate and invite people into life with Jesus. And so what might that look like this week? Do you think we, we encourage you to encourage people to join us here on a Sunday gathering? Terry? Yes, the answer is yes. We would love that. 50 times a year, we're preaching to the church. If you're here and you've yet to treasure Jesus and you're just trying to discover, I love that you're here. I love, I hope we're spurring on questions. We think questions are valuable. To, to, to encourage and foster an exploration of the mysterious God that we believe in. But two times a year, 50 times a year, we are expositing a text and we are developing, empowering, and releasing those that claim the treasure Jesus into their Monday to Saturday. Two times a year, we are much more explicit. I am speaking not to those that treasure Jesus exclusively, but much more directly those that have yet to treasure Jesus. So, so Easter and Christmas... We're not thinking of you primarily, but hoping that it might stimulate a conversation with those that have yet to treasure Christ in your life. So it looks like a church invitation, but is it more than that? Oh, 100%. Is this invitation, this call to follow, more than just telling someone to park their butt here next to you? Yes. It looks like an invitation into your house for coffee to begin having dialogues about this life with Christ, about the stake that you have found that, that makes everything else in this life pale in comparison. You mean even if I had relish too? Yes, even if you had relish too. That stake, with or without ketchup, just shatters the paradigm of that hot dog. It looks like you actually just inviting people into your life. And not as something you do, but as just someone of who you are. It's not, it's not, well, David, I got to do more and try harder, and you're just having me do more in my life. Evangelism is not about adding some extra event to your life. Rather, redeeming every moment of every day. If we are not missing the king, it inevitably gets expressed as embracing Jesus as our treasure and overflowing into our life and our everyday conversations. This is the beauty of the journey of life with Jesus we begin asking what matters most and who matters most. We just found some bread and we want to share it with those around us, this desire for intentional apprenticeship. Because you're watching the world shift, right? And sometimes I get discouraged at my inability to affect any change. But here's the confidence. And I love, I love the quote from Andy Stanley. Do for one what you wished you could do for many. Do for one what you wished you could do for many. And so what does that look like in our lives this week? What are the implications? What does it look like for us to respond to not missing the king this Easter season? I hope there's a few ideas. For us, don't miss out in the midst of all the other activities that might be taking place. As you might feel overwhelmed by whatever circumstances might be coming your way, 
Don't get lost that King Jesus isn't still on his throne and he is very deliberate and in control. That the circumstances aren't a setback, whatever might be happening in your life, like you might have heard from Monica or Jenny, but rather a setup for what God is doing in your life. Can you go to the next slide, Josh or Megan? And don't miss them. Not simply barcode faith, not simply a get out of hell free card but rather, what are you living for in your Monday to Saturday? If we really aren't missing the arrival of the king, then we understand it's not just what we're saved from, but it is how we're living and what we're living for. And then fight for your joy. It's no longer, what am I giving up? But if I believe there is joy in Jesus, how am I fighting for more joy in Jesus? One of the ways we foster that around here is through our life groups fighting with other believers to believe there's more joy in the midst of whatever might be confronting us that week, that we are fighting together for our joy. And then when, I appear, when it appears someone's settling for the hot dog, what's my desire? Do I beat them up for loving the hot dog? Stinking mustard, what are you doing? Eh, the hot dog's not quite as good. Well, what about a brat? No, that's still not as good. Or do you fight for others' joy? and share about what's being done in your life and continue to invite them because of what's taking place in your life, invite others to find that stake satisfying, to invite them to truly believe there is joy in Jesus. Do we fight for that? So this Easter season, Good Friday, would love to see you this Good Friday. I think Jack's designing a great service to help us reflect on the power of what's taking place. And then I can't wait to see you Easter Sunday, 8, 9, 30, or 11, as we celebrate this risen Savior and the treasure that we have. Pray with me. God, you're so good. Thank you for who you are, what you are doing. Help us experience that reality more. We want that. We get so lost in our day today, we get clouded by all the things competing for our affection. Help us lean into not your works, but the person, the, the person of who you are. Jesus, help us experience more of your grace and forgiveness this Easter season. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen.